Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Now playing on demand is Son of Saul, the Academy Award-winning best foreign language film about an Auschwitz prisoner who tries to find a rabbi to give his child a proper burial. Also playing on demand is The Lady in the Van, starring Maggie Smith as a homeless woman who develops an unlikely friendship with the playwright whose driveway she lives in for 15 years. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on the latest episode, a movie about the celebrity, comedian, actor, painter, renaissance man, and horrific, despicable despot, Adolf Hitler. His inexplicable return to life in the present day is the subject of our listener's choice review, Look Who's Back. Inspired by Look Who's Back, let's do a deep dive onto the... Inspired by Look Who's Back, let's do a deep dive into the origins, the history, and the philosophical underpinnings of national socialism. Let's really get into it, Allison. I've got some notes right here. Excellent. And uh, a few books. Wonderful. Yeah, I checked I think, a few volumes out. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this. Yeah, settle in, guys. It's, this is going to be a long podcast. <laughs> and if a joke about Nazi history lessons seems highly inappropriate, well, that's the point. Most of the jokes in Look Who's Back are highly inappropriate. And some will definitely make you uncomfortable. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this week on the show for Q Shots. Edgy, controversial, or shocking comedies about taboo subjects. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. Allison, what are our picks this time? Well, first up is a film that I enjoyed a lot and that I do highly recommend you check out now that it is available on demand. It is currently available. It is Ip Man 3. Uh, this is the sequel to Ip Man 1 and 2, both of which are streaming on Netflix. And I would say the series is sort of China's answer to Rocky. These movies are equal parts violence and sentimentality. And they are super nationalistic. Yeah. Um, Ip Man is a real person. He was the Wing Chun master who taught Bruce Lee, most famously. He's also the subject of Wong Kar Wai's The Grand Master. But in the Ip Man movies, he is played by Donnie Yen, uh, with each installment kind of playing faster and looser with the actual guy's biography. In each one, Ip embodies the philosophies of Wing Chun. He is very humble. He is serene. He doesn't seek out fights. And yet in each movie, he ends up battling a lot of people, inevitably some of them uh, foreigners who have come to kind of threaten his the place that he lives. So in the first one, uh, he fights a bunch of Japanese soldiers who are karate masters uh, during the Japanese uh, invasion of China during the Second World War. In the second movie, he defeats a racist British boxing champion. That one is very, that's the, the Rocky one is, that feels very Rocky, like Rocky Four. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then in this third one, who does he fight, Matt? I'm going to say Mike Tyson. He fights Mike Tyson. Nice. Among other people. In fact, I will say this. Tyson was featured very heavily in the marketing materials uh, for this movie when it was released in the U.S. Small role. Yes, earlier this year. I would say he gets maybe like five or six minutes worth Aww. of screen time. Uh, and when it, it starts, you think, oh, this is going to be one of those movies in which... 
you know, this uh, for this international talent was brought in to basically show their face. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a small role. He's like evil real estate developer. Speaks a little Cantonese in the movie. Nice. Very gallantly tries to nice. make, try make it work. Uh, and then there is a fight scene. Nice. And it is delightful. Uh, they like do. I think he challenges Itmun to like last three minutes with him. Mm-hmm. And and then they fight. Uh, and it is, I will say, rarely has a movie reminded me so strongly of Street Fighter 2. <laughs> if you remember, Street Fighter 2 had has a, a character, character who's based, based on, on Mike, Mike Tyson. Tyson Balrog. He was originally called M. Bison in the Japanese release. And then they decided that was a little too, too suitable. <laughs> and they, they switched to the name with another character. So he's Balrog. Right. But yes. It, it also has that that kind of like two very different fighting styles uh and choreography having and the choreography in this movie uh some of which is done by the great uh yun wu ping who is you know one of the great workings and photographers mm-hmm. in the matrix and crouching tiger uh and and this movie is uh definitely messy but in addition to that fight and and the kind of joys of that it is also a movie about Ipman having to deal with the fact that his wife gets sick, which is something that happened in real life, and and choosing to basically spend time with her over defending the honor of his martial arts. And I think it fits in very nicely with these themes of being like not being prideful, not being arrogant. You know, of course, like he chooses to do this like kind of wonderful thing with his like this kind of wonderful scene with his wife rather than stand up for prove himself and his martial arts prowess uh, so that is definitely worth a look it's Ipman 3 that is now available on demand also now available on demand is tale of tales the new film from matteo garoni who directed gomorrah which is a film i think we both liked a lot yep. uh very different subject matter but like that film which was about uh crime in current day italy this one ties together different storylines in this case they're dark fairy tales they're based on a collection of uh collective fairy tales from the 1600s they follow storylines from three different kingdoms in one there's a queen played by Selma hayek who's so desperate for a child that she tries a risky spell at great cost And then there's one with Toby Jones as a king who raises a giant flea and separately uh, loses his daughter to a terrible marriage because of a bet that he made. Uh, And then there's Vincent Cassell as a king who falls in love with a woman because of her voice, not knowing that she's actually one of two elderly sisters who are in charge of the dye works Mm. and woos her anyway. And all of these these stories are filled with like gorgeous, disturbing imagery. Uh, Selma Hayek eating a heart is like uh, goes on the poster and it is it is definitely something else Mm -hmm. i don't think this movie is maybe as resonant overall or kind of as has as much emotional pull as something like gamora but it is i think very visually impressive it's gorgeous at parts and and certainly for that and if you're a lover of dark fairy tales it is worth finding that is tale of tales it is now available on demand and finally also available on demand is hostile border uh, I saw this movie when it was originally called pocha, uh, which is the term used uh, by Mexicans to describe Mexican-Americans who don't speak Spanish or speak it poorly uh-huh. or basically just have American taste. It's it's like, um, I don't know, I guess like it's almost like Oreo or something like that, right? Uh, in this case, it stars Veronica Sixtos as Claudia, 
who would be the poacha in question. A 20-something who has lived most of her life in the U.S. uh, and has been indulging in a little credit card fraud scam with some other people. And she's caught. And because uh, she was originally brought into the country with her mom undocumented, is sent. uh, she's deported to go live with her father, who she barely knows, in a country she doesn't know. uh, And she doesn't really speak Spanish. And so it's uh, it's about how it's almost like a, a Western because her father owns a ranch. Uh, but it's about how Claudia both tries to or maybe doesn't want to try and fit in into this life uh, and to the reality of the fact that she may never be able to go back to the U.S. Uh, but it's also a thriller involving uh, a kind of criminal who smuggles things across the border that she gets involved with. Not a perfect film by any means, but it definitely brings up a scenario that is very intriguing, which is this idea that despite being American and feeling American, you can you can be denied the country, you know, because you are undocumented. So that is Hostile Border, and it is also now available on demand. War das nötig? Ja, musste das sein. Ja, das war die einzige Sprache, die er verstanden hat. Geben Sie mir die Waffe. Nein, ich meine Geben Sie mir die Waffe mit der, mit der geladenen Pistole hier rumlaufen. Our main review on every episode of Filmspotting SVU is chosen by listeners through a poll at our website, filmspottingsvu.com. And your options for this episode were the new documentary Western by the talented filmmakers The Ross Brothers, Look Who's Back, a German comedy that Netflix recently acquired and which imagines what would happen in a world where Adolf Hitler inexplicably returned to life in modern day, And finally, the second season of the Amazon Prime series, Bosch. And this turned out to be one of our closer races, which eat. And this turned out to be one of our closer races with each of the three options garnering around a third of the vote. But in the end, look who's back wound up coming in first place with 38%. The film is adapted from a hugely successful German novel by Timur Vermes. That sold well over a million copies and was translated into dozens of languages. In the film version, directed by David Wendt, Hitler, played by Oliver Mazzusi, wakes up in 2015. We think we're not what we were debating what year it was. I, th- I thought they said 2015, but maybe I'm mistaken. Anyway, he wakes up in our society without a clue how he got there. And initially, he experiences extreme culture shock, but eventually, he starts to get his bearings, thanks in part to the help of a TV journalist named Savatsky, played by Fabian Bush, and Savatsky's career is in trouble. His whole TV station is in upheaval, and so he pitches a show about this guy that he at first believes is maybe an impersonator, some kind of method actor. From there, the movie considers what would happen to a guy like Hitler, or I guess in this case, a guy who is Hitler, if he tried to basically do the same things he was doing in the 1930s and 40s in our modern era. That juxtaposition certainly brings up some interesting parallels in the political climate of Germany and perhaps the United States, uh, comparing the 1930s to the 20-teens, and we can certainly discuss that. There's some very interesting Borat-style confrontational comedy we should also discuss here because some of the scenes with Hitler, in quotation marks, are set in the real world with real people who don't realize that this is an actor or, well, I guess they have to assume it's an actor. It's an actor. But how they react to them is not scripted, let's say. But I wanted to start here where everything flows from in this case Hitler. 
Allison, what did you think of this guy who plays him and his performance? And what did you also think of the characterization of Hitler? Did it feel like it rang true to you? Was he convincing? Did they maybe go too easy on Hitler? How did you react to Hitler? Huh. That's an interesting question. I found a lot of the early stuff in the film in which Hitler wakes up and of course and like wanders around getting lost in, in the modern day Germany. Yeah. He's maced by someone, kids mm-hmm. make fun of him. Yeah. I found that agonizing. Mm. I, I, I thought that I just I, I think in general this like Hitler doesn't know how to use a mouse on a computer. It was <laughs> right. like not, I think, the most sophisticated comedy. Mm-hmm. But I think that the movie and this is one of the points the movie raises is that we maybe looking back at one of the major and most horrific atrocities in recorded history, that it's easy for us to distance ourselves from it by either thinking that Hitler must have come across as this obvious monster, right, or as this, we think of him as this caricature of a person, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's part of the reason that everyone laughs when they see him is because it's so outrageous uh and like and and kind of hitler has been treated as this ridiculous monstrous but ridiculous figure in a lot of kind of comedies Mm -hmm. that maybe we don't spend a lot of time thinking about him as he was as like an actual politician and as a person right you know and i think in the film at some certain point they raise the point that like he didn't seem over the top to people in the thirties who started following him. Mm-hmm. You know, he seemed like a politician with these views and they appealed to people then. Right. Uh, and I think that the, the performance seems to be calculated to that, you know, to, to, to bring out that theme and to highlight that theme mm-hmm. that he was not, you know, running around stabbing people who are, uh, revealed that they were jewish or you know like anything like he was someone who who wanted to to be elected right and he, he was, was elected, and he was elected which they make a point of in yes the movie too. yes so i think that for me i i mean i think the fact that he kind of i think plays it down a bit worked mm-hmm. do i feel like the movie gave me more of an understanding of hitler no <laughs> <laughs> i mean like i don't think he tries to maybe like act uh, about like you know I mean, he basically like regurgitates chunks of biography as as is needed right i mean it's almost it it is more of a borat style performance in a lot of the times like it's a it's a performance about improvisation and also about almost like throwing this symbol in front of people and seeing how they react right more than it is like an active yeah. an active performance yeah. so i don't know that i was like blown away by like what this guy does on screen. Right. But I think it kind of feeds into the larger themes the movie was going for. But yeah. I don't know. How about you? No, I, I think we're pretty much on the same page. I, I, I don't think I dislike those early scenes quite as much as you did, but I agree they're the weakest in the movie. And, and yeah, I mean, it seems to me silly and not necessarily a good way to watch Hitler sort of, as you said, like bumbling around. Like, I don't know that I, I imagine Hitler acting like a boob, basically. Like, and that wasn't the, the stuff that was interesting in this movie was not really that. The stuff that's worthwhile in the movie wasn't really that. And similarly, the stuff about the, the television station, while certainly crucial to getting where the movie gets, which is important, there's a lot of stuff in that television station. So which broad. And yeah, very broad and kind of lame and, and familiar from other smarter, you know, like sort of media satires. Um, but you're right. What 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 works about this Hitler is the way that he acts as like a mirror and also how he reflects not just 
what's going on in Germany. But I think what what's interesting is to see some potential parallels with American Absolutely. political culture right now in this huge election that's coming up and and the fears that Hitler kind of plays upon in this movie are the same it's the same rhetoric that you hear in some of the candidates today which is kind of certainly something that's been discussed it's not like this movie will open your eyes to the parallels between certain candidates out there but I did think it was uh, pretty interesting to see up on screen and to see the way that people reacted to him. Now, to a certain extent, I did also want to say, while I do think that the movie makes some smart points about political culture today and the these sort of very racist or nationalistic and potentially very dangerous and scary attitudes. I will say, like, the, the prankish stuff is a lot less provocative than, say, when he goes to talk to the woman at, like, that hot dog stand or whatever it mm. is. And she just kind of confesses, like, unburdens you know, herself yes, unburdens of herself. this hatred. And it says yes. something will sound very familiar to people who have been watching, like, TV, yes. political, like, political coverage on television right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. Which is, like, you know, all of these immigrants come in and you're like, you can't say anything about it because they'll call you xenophobic, you know, right. and all of that. <laughs> and it's just, like, the most familiar yes. rhetoric. And it's, like, literally the sight of Adolf Hitler that, right. like, causes her to, like, feel comfortable right. spilling this on camera. Uh, and that is is definitely provocative though i did feel watching this and i wonder how you feel about this that sometimes the the use of this kind of borat style technique to like that that allows people or manages to get people to say terrible things catches them yeah in moments know, of unguardedness I, yes i feel like sometimes i don't know that i'm that impressed by that catching people saying terrible things because i feel like a lot of these people would say terrible things if you just asked them you outright. just ask them outright that's yes. possible it's i very... mean especially some of the people later in this well movie. certainly if you walked up to neo-nazis they probably wouldn't be too shy well, sure, about their but like feelings the people at the bar who are going off about like i you know they literally i think one of them says make germany great again right <laughs> which I think they would say that regardless if they were just being, you know, polled for some television station. Probably. Yeah. I will say in some ways what was more interesting to this movie about this movie to me was were the issues that it raised about provocative comedy, mm. you know, and about the idea that uh, at what point is it actually not accomplishing anything? You know, and I think it raises a question. I don't think it really answers it of being like, does the fact that we have basically defanged the idea of of Adolf Hitler mm. as like one of the great monsters of history by, you know, Charlie Chaplin from everything from like all of like for years and years and years mm. uh, in terms of like making him to, into a punchline. Does that does that actually in the end kind of like especially as generations pass change our perception of him, mm -hmm. you know, that like. I mean, maybe being like, no one should ever joke about Hitler is not in the answer. But I think it does raise this question of being like, if if Hitler is coming off and being read as like the edgiest of comedy, which is what happens, he becomes a famous comedian, basically, in this right. world. Uh, I, I do think it raises this question of being like, at what point is edgy comedy not actually accomplishing anything? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was some of the more interesting stuff in the movie as well, even more than some of the kind of confrontational Borat-style scenes, that some of the, the media commentary I thought was pretty interesting. And and to a certain extent, I thought a lot of what happens in the movie to Hitler seemed pretty plausible. And some of the – not everything, but a lot of it I thought made a lot of sense, right down to the idea that, like, he could espouse these horrible beliefs and people would – 
potentially laugh at it because he has been sort of turned into this caricature. But if he killed a dog, he would be vilified. That was actually, I think, one of the best parts of the movie. Absolutely. that when you're like, you can say... You could say the things that Hitler said. Right. You can say on television, like the things, and everyone will laugh and laugh. But right. like killing a dog. Or agree with him. Yes. And killing a dog. Is that like is a, it. That's that you crossed yeah. the line, Hitler. <laughs> and I also thought that was an interesting thing to do in the movie because, you know, they do kind of, they make him this sort of comical figure that you don't necessarily despise right away. And I'm thinking, okay, but he's Hitler. And then they do show that he is the kind of person that would murder a dog, which... I felt like that was in you know what I felt like that was in character for Hitler, so I thought that that was interesting to do in the middle of the movie where they're kind of doing all this sort of sticky stuff where they're having a lot of fun with him just to kind of remind you of the menace of this person, but then to also use that within the framework of the media satire of the movie, I thought it was pretty sharp and smart. Yeah, and also like speaking to our times very almost like painfully well. Yeah, uh, I do think. This movie is is very good at highlighting the ways in which, uh, at to to use the kind of Carville and movie quote, uh, our brand is crisis is as political rhetoric has been used throughout history. Right? Yeah. I mean, like that that he kind of like basically repeats some of his speeches from from the 30s but that uh as he kind of adapts himself to the modern day that is like what he's saying and that is like those are the ideas that a lot of the people he talks to espouse as well mm-hmm. we need to save germany right we're in a crisis and germany like no one sees the things that like disaster that is happening but i do and i can stop it right and i i mean like that's political rhetoric that is in our current election you know and i think it is it's it's funny and painful to watch as like something that as a tool as a political tool that it is so kind of reliable right uh, and that that people respond to it so strongly you know we need to be saved from like things are just like going to hell and and we need this person to save us and but also the idea that in terms of the media, the fact that, you know, someone could appear and say these horrible things and not only would people maybe laugh or shrug it off, then they'd go back to watching their cooking show or whatever it is. That Just the idea that, that the, the, the audience, like that there's not this level of engagement and some people certainly are, but just the idea that so many people with the legitimate problems that we have, not just in, about politics, the environment, which is kind of a thing that comes up a lot in the movie, surprised su- surprised me to a certain extent. But just the idea that these topics would come up, but that everything you would see on television would be like cooking shows, that all he finds is kind of garbage TV. Um, I don't know. I thought that was sort of interesting as well, that that the, the media landscape would be such that when these – the, 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 like these figures that we could recognize would exist as as problems and we would just change the channel like that that our culture has become such that you know the people we don't want to listen to we just ignore yeah but i think that i mean one of the things i think the movie raises and engages with is that i don't know i mean like i would say we're hearing very alarming rhetoric on television mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. um Neither of us has risen up to do, you know, <laughs> neither, True. neither of us is doing anything active I right. think, other than like voting as as anyone else. You Look, know, we have does. a podcast to do, Allison. This is pretty important. Right. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think. the best... I'm not indicting other people. I, I I'm including myself I know, in but this. Like, I mean, I think I think the best point the movie makes is that. 
that I, I think it's very easy in hindsight to be like, well, we'd obviously recognize like right. one of like this, this person like yeah. rising up on like this terrible dark cloud on the horizon and that we'd never let that happen again. Right. And the movie is like, don't be so it, sure. It was basically like you like you've already you've seen variations of this already. And also like you wouldn't know, like right. you wouldn't you wouldn't know. I think it is a good reminder that, you know, that, that these things can happen again, that it's not that uh impossible and that yeah hitler was a horrible person but again he was elected that there you know that there that there are these forces in society that you know recur that these things don't just go away and just because it did happen once doesn't mean that it couldn't happen again and uh yeah i i I, did i need the scene where they they make fun of downfall in the in the television station no i didn't and i thought that was kind of kind of lame to be honest with you and uh i feel like most of the more scripted parts are are pretty pretty lame lame. yeah Yeah. and all the stuff with savatsky and the you know it gets to kind of like a twilight zoney kind of an ending which i thought was uh, i don't know i i guess i i sort of admire the cojones to kind of give us a somewhat of a dark and downer ending but I, 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 I mean, I didn't really care about any of the characters anyway. So that, to that, that extent, I thought was sort of – that didn't really do much for me. And it did also seem like you know the movie tries to make the book a, a part of the movie. Very awkward. And the story to me sort of spiraled out of control at that point. Like they had kind of – it had gotten too diffuse. And I, I, f- I felt like, like you said, the, the, the smartest stuff is the, the commentary, the stuff that really brings it to focus – what happened and what could happen again and making you consider those sorts of things. So overall, do you feel like you would recommend this to someone? Yeah, I would. I don't think it's a great film, but I thought it, I, I was glad to have watched it. Certainly. And there's some, I did laugh a couple of times. There are, there are some funny sequences and there are some very disturbing sequences. And, uh, you know, I, I, we, I started with the guy who plays uh, Hitler asking you about him. I did think he did a very good job. I mean, that is a difficult role to play for yeah. sure. And it requires you like keeping a ferocious, like deadpan. That's basically. right. And yeah. to go into these situations, I mean, to go into a situation like uh, as Hitler. Now we saw where people sort of a lot of times reacted positively in the sense that they embraced him and wanted to talk about these horrible things. Yeah. But you have to imagine there were there. He there, was, is, there is one person. There's one who, person who really, you know, gives yes. him like the speech you would hope everyone gives him, which is right. like, I, if it was up to me, you would be thrown out of here and that sort of thing. And you have to imagine there could be other situations where that He's happened. Also being followed around by cameras. True. And I feel like that changes things a lot. If yeah. it was just a guy with, if it was a hidden camera. There though, did seem to be sometimes where there looked like there was hidden. a couple of yeah. hidden or just kind of more subtly, uh, being filmed, but I always yeah. wonder. I mean, to me, you're there. There is a danger there of you know somebody could get really mad, and not yes. un, not incorrectly. They're you know rightfully so to a certain extent, but just I don't know. That was a role that I felt like is a difficult role, a challenging role, and potentially a dangerous role for the guy playing him. And I thought he did well. He wasn't necessarily. I didn't think it was an incredible performance. I I, I he thought committed. it was he, he compl- committed. He certainly committed. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, that is Look Who's Back, and it is now streaming on Netflix. Germany was having trouble. What a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? We looked around, and then we found a man for you and me.
All right, we, we, well, we're, we're off air here. We're like, what are we, exactly are we calling this? Are these edgy comedies? Are these comedies about taboo subjects? Controversial comedies? I think they're sort of all of the above. And also comedies about unlikely things. Maybe things that aren't funny. Making fun of things that aren't funny. Trying to make light of the darkness. I guess that's our topic here. That's certainly true of, of Look Who's Back. Yes, I agreed. I like that. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like the idea of comedy going places that would seem impossible or very right. difficult. Or that we, on the surface, it sounds like something it shouldn't do. This is not something to joke about, which is, I mean, I, I, I you know, certainly very familiar with the movie The Producers, which that was a lot of people's reactions to The Producers is like, you should not be making fun of this. And, you know, Mel Brooks always said, and something we talked about in the review, like, well, the way to kind of take these these dictators down a peg is to turn them into jokes. I, and I thought one of the interesting things you said in the last segment is that maybe you can go too far in that direction. Perhaps. Or maybe there are consequences to that as right. well. Exactly. But uh, your first pick is one of the, the kind of like great acts of using satire. That's right. Someone. That's right. Uh, a, a character we've talked about quite a bit already on this podcast. Uh, yeah. So it was the first movie I thought of when we, we talked about this as the subject for the podcast, because it is another comedy about Hitler, and that's Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. And as edgy as it is to make a movie about Hitler in 2016, it it was a lot edgier to do it in 1940 um, when Chaplin released The Great Dictator, because at that time the United States wasn't even at war with Germany yet. Uh, there was certainly plenty of anti-Nazi sentiment, anti-Hitler sentiment in the U.S., but it wasn't like a universally agreed upon thing. And I guess if if you're unfamiliar with the movie and with the situation, I would hope you'd be kind of familiar with it. But I guess the analog for today would be like the interview. Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg's The Interview is that they made this movie about North Korea. We're not at war with North Korea or anything like that. And they didn't change the country, although that is what Chaplin did. They went even more directly, which is kind of interesting. And I guess you could that could have been one of our picks, I suppose. Uh, I, I like The Great Dictator a little bit better than The Interview. That's why I went with I that. I agree. But if you do want to watch The Interview, I haven't seen it. It is on Netflix. Although I will say that. So I thought the, the you know thinking about the two movies together, The Interview – and the great dictator. I thought maybe one difference uh, between the films and their origins is the fact that Chaplin kind of had this strange connection to Hitler. They were about the same age. They came from similar backgrounds and they did kind of look alike, right? They had those famous little mustaches. Um, According to Charlie Chaplin's son, he kind of recognized the similarities and they used to upset him. He would talk about that and how he kind of saw that hit, like Hitler almost as like his dark kind of like doppelganger that they uh, were you know that one person could be so different but come from kind of a similar background and that one person could dedicate his life to making comedy and making people happy and the other person would be no I'm you know and be focused so completely on destruction and evil and becoming a tyrant um and one of the fun things about the great dictator is that it actually makes the physical similarity between the two men the plot, basically, because Chaplin plays two people. He plays this unnamed Jewish barber, and then he plays the Hitler character, who's named Adnoid Hinkle, who is the dictator of a fictional country, Tomania. And the movie cuts back and forth between the two characters' stories, but then in classic comedy fashion, they eventually switch identities, or the the barber becomes Hinkle. He's mistaken for Hinkle, which leads to the end of the movie where everything stops, and Chaplin 
delivers this impassioned speech to the camera, looking directly into the lens, denouncing fascism and hatred and pleading with the world for peace and freedom. And The Great Dictator was Chaplin's first talkie. Uh, widely regarded as a masterpiece, but a lot of people don't like the speech. The speech is kind of a sticking point because it's not funny, and it, the movie just stops. And in fact, even Roger Ebert, who wrote an essay about the movie and put it in his Great Movies books, he said that the movie plays like a comedy followed by an editorial. And I guess that's fair enough, but I thought I would defend the speech, uh, defend the undefendable, uh, defend the uncinematic, I guess. And say that what I like about the speech at the end of The Great Dictator is it is a – it's a moment of subversion. It is one of the most subversive moments in the movie and maybe one of the most subversive moments in movie comedies of that era or ever, I guess, because he works the whole movie to a point where he gets to give a speech on behalf of liberty and freedom and democracy while dressed as Hitler. He takes the most the – most, the, the face of evil, the face of hatred – and he turns it into like the face of goodness and justice. And I find something very powerful about that and, and almost like revolutionary. And no, it's not a very funny scene. And it, it, it doesn't really you know, fit into the narrative. It breaks sort of the fourth wall. But I, I think there's something kind of beautiful about that to be like to take – to steal Hitler's face and to turn him into a force for democracy and freedom and justice. I don't know. There's, and to rally people to fight Hitler with that face. I don't know. Something kind of amazing about that to me. So it's a great movie. It has great comic set pieces. Not necessarily the ending is very funny, but it has some really great funny sequences. And I, I rewatched the movie just a few years ago. And at the time, I was like, it still feels really vital and had a lot of edge to it. And that was before this presidential election cycle. So um, it, potentially it could feel even more timely now. So that is The Great Dictator. Uh, I don't think I mentioned before. You can watch it on Hulu. All right. Well, my pick, I kind of am sneaking in two picks into this. Oh, you're to, cheating. I'm cheating. Um, but it is, I think, the better answer to the movie that you mentioned Well, before going into talking about The Great Dictator, which is the interview. Mm. Oh, it, I know where you're going It is this. a comedy yes. that deals with North Korea. Mm-hmm. And I think is sharper. It's a better movie, yes, for sure. It's sharper and sadder as well uh and it is the red chapel and the movie i'm gonna throw in in addition to it is the ambassador okay these are both by mads Bruger, uh, who is a danish television host as well as a filmmaker uh, they are both streaming on fandor i think we've mentioned Bruger, uh, or at least the ambassador in an early i'm pretty podcast. sure we did um so like both of these documentaries do attempt the same sort of borat maybe meets michael moore stunt of like mm-hmm. it's like stunt investigative journalism right might call it meets comedy what makes them better than that, and I think what saves them from the smugness that they both verge on sometimes, is that Brugger is also willing to pull back the curtain and to admit the flaws in his own approach in both cases. I think he is also willing to accept the fact that like the, the information that he is ultimately bringing you in these movies, which in The Red Chapel is that conditions in North Korea are god-awful, and in The Ambassador is that there is endemic awful corruption in liberia in the central african republic neither of these things i think will come as a shocker to you um but uh but that that he it feels like he learns something and is sometimes kind of cowed in the process in both of these movies so the ambassador really quickly 
is about how he he buys some kind of sketchy Liberian diplomatic credentials and goes to the Central African Republic, intending sh- to show how people regularly smuggle illegal diamonds out of the country, just suitcases full under the guise of diplomatic immunity, and also by bribing everyone. Everyone is corrupt. Everyone takes bribes as he's there. Um, and he shows up in this like total like in like knee high boots and like jodhpurs and like this and smoking like pipes and cig- cigars and an array of obnoxious like I am a European asshole in in Africa intending to pillage uh, outfits. But what happens over the course of the movie is that basically this situation turns out to be too terrible and too dangerous to even make fun of. Mm. Like he understands that his life is in danger as he tries to investigate or tries to basically go about like buying diamonds. And some, one of the people he talks to over the course of the film does get killed. And, and it's like the comedy just like drains out of the scenario. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the red chapel, I think you can say the same about the red chapel, which I think is his better film. It was his earlier one. Yeah. Uh, He recruits two Korean Danes to form a theater troupe in order to gain access to North Korea as part of this proposed cross-cultural exchange. Their act is like totally underwhelming. It includes a cover of Wonderwall on on guitar. Uh, but they get access anyway because, as Bruger totally knows, uh, North Korea finds it irresistible that these two Korean adoptees, in wanting to c- reconnect with their homeland, would choose North Korea over South Korea. Um, and so they get access. Uh, it's very controlled. And one of the two, one of the two people he's with has, um, you know, some kind of degen- degenerative disorder that kind of affects his speech. So that he, uh, Bruger calls him a spastic. The, the guy himself prefers the term spastic, um, but it affects his speech so that he says whatever's on his mind because none of the the Korean um, surveillance, the North Korean surveillance that's being done on them, none of them can understand his his Danish with uh, with the kind of how his speech is affected. But he just says whatever's on his mind. As uh, as they're kind of toured around, I think uh, sites that will be familiar with you if you've watched any kind of any of the documentaries in which someone tries to gain access to North Korea, uh, you know, where you're shown uh, cultural displays and you're shown none of the actual sadness, uh, which is all kept safely outside. What makes the Red Chapel so biting? Um, is as Bruger kind of tries to do all of these stunts to show off the evilness of this totalitarian government, uh, he's shown a statue of the dear leader and asks if he can read a commemorative poem. And the co- poem is like, love is like a pineapple, like deep. In- <laughs> I can't remember what it is, but it's like a poem about a, a pineapple. Uh, it is not meaningful. Uh, is, uh, you know, what, but what makes this so much better is the fact that the two comedians he's with start basically being like, I'm done this isn't funny. Right. Um, they start feeling they start feeling both like empathy and fear and loathing of like the people who are escorting them around, especially Jacob, who is who is the one with the disorder, who who starts to say he keeps asking where are the other disabled people in North Korea, and he says he 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 talks about how he can f- he see the loathing in the eyes of the woman who keeps being like you should stay here I would take care of you. Um, uh, it really, I think, goes places that are so much more, that have so much more depth and I think are so much more challenging than the initial premise, the initial kind of like gonzo journalism premise would suggest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, these, they're both, they're both good films. I, I, the Red Chapel, I think, is, a, is, is 
something close to a great film and it 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 shows some of the limits of dark comedy i think in the same way if we discussed uh there are limits to or, or sometimes maybe there are consequences to 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 making fun of things uh I, I think this shows the other way where sometimes you run out of things to laugh about uh and th- so that's the red chapel and the ambassador both of them streaming on fandor all right it was a cheat but uh, they're good picks so i'll, I'll i will i will allow it, it. Thank yes thank you all right, my next pick, maybe not as edgy or controversial or taboo as some of the other movies we've discussed already, but I think that this movie is inherently making fun of something that's not very funny, which is another thing that we said sort of qualified, which in this case is like mental illness, mental breakdowns, and that is the movie Super from 2010, which is available on Netflix. It was directed by James Gunn, who is now this huge Hollywood director thanks to the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, which is this very light, entertaining uh, take on superheroes. And I don't mean that insultingly. Like, it just sort of, like, embraces these archetypes as fun and, and, you know, poppy and light and enjoyable. And Super is like the dark flip side of that coin. It's about this loser named Frank, played by Rain Wilson, who at the beginning of the film— says that he's only had two, like, perfect moments in his life. The moment when he married his wife, who's played by Liv Tyler, and then the day that he very minorly assisted a police officer in maybe apprehending a criminal. We don't even see. He basically just saw a guy run by and pointed the police officer in his direction. That's it. This is a perfect moment in his in his life. And so when his wife leaves him for another man, he basically just goes insane and... Because he's lost this one perfect thing in his life, he fixates on the other and becomes a crime fighter. And after this strange kind of dream or hallucination or divine vision, which looks a lot like the weird anime tentacle porn he'd been watching a few hours earlier, Frank creates this costume identity called the Crimson Bolt and becomes this vigilante. And... From there, the movie follows Frank as he fights crime, but also tries to kind of, in his mind, rescue his wife. But you could also say kind of lure or kidnap back his wife from the clutches of her new man, who's played by Kevin Bacon. And basically, Frank is Travis Bickle uh, if he had decided to put on a costume instead of getting a hack license. And Super is like Taxi Driver as a comedy, which to me – I mean Taxi Driver is one of my all-time favorite movies, but is one of the – darkest and most disturbing movies and to play that for laughs uh, i find very uh, interesting and kind of uncomfortable in a good way and what happens in this movie is not funny but i laugh at parts of it that the uh, the absurdity of frank's situation and particularly his relationship with his eventual sidekick who's played by ellen page and maybe is even nuttier than he is and I liked this movie when it came out, uh, but I I took a look back at it for this podcast. And the thing that really interested me about it, looking at it now, that I certainly didn't think of at the time, but have a hard time sort of separating from the movie now, is it's not just a story about a guy with a mental breakdown, but that maybe it is a story about the attitudes of comic book nerds and their mental instability and their issues with women. That's something that I didn't really think about in 2010, but – Doing this job now is very hard to uh, avoid, that it's like a part of this world now. Um, and, you know, the, the Kevin Bacon character, 
now by the end of the movie, not, not maybe not a great guy, maybe not a great influence on Frank's wife, but Frank doesn't really care who the, his wife winds up with. Like he doesn't really consider her feelings at all. It's not about that. It's about him. It's about what he needs and that she is just this thing to be rescued, that she's not a person. And the the movie this time really resonated with me with the these the, some of these internet fanboys, these trolls, and the way that they look at women and then also treat women on the internet. And it almost seems like, to some degree, that James Gunn saw this thing that I didn't really see that was always there. You know, that I don't want to say that he anticipated it, but these the reaction to these sorts of specifically these kind of movies, to the superhero movies, and the way that he made a superhero movie about that subject now strikes me as even more subversive than the movie was in the first place which i thought was pretty subversive because he made a movie one about he made uh, taxi driver the comedy but he also made a movie about how being a superhero or trying to be a superhero is kind of an insane and unhealthy thing to do in the first place it's it's a kind of narcissism in a way absolutely like, the world needs me yes i have to make these terrible sacrifices but it can't be helped because the world needs my help yes and to, and he believes he's been anointed by God that he I mean he's deranged but that the idea that maybe superhero anyone who would try to do this is inherently deranged. There's a lot you know it's a movie that got I think it got okay reviews, but it wasn't as well received as Slither, his sort of horror comedy, which people thought was yeah it was a lot of fun. I I read a lot of people I remember when this movie coming out saying oh I hated Super I didn't think it was funny at all. It was weird. And it makes I, a few choices that are very dark. Very dark. But that's, I think, why it fits so perfectly yeah. with this subject. And I think given – only given the way that not only superhero movies have moved in the five years since this movie, but the way the culture around them and the way the discussion around them or lack of discussion because it's people shouting at other people and threatening them with death – it's a pretty interesting movie to look at now. So take a look if you haven't seen it or if you don't remember it all that well. I think this is a movie that it's going to have an, a much larger uh, cult following in over time. And the fact that James Gunn is now such a big mainstream director, I think, only enhances that. So it's super. It's available on Netflix. All right. Well, my second pick is also, I'd say, about a topic that that maybe maybe we don't tend to think is uh, that people try and make funny sometimes but i guess is is rarely actually funny mm-hmm. um which would be like the dysfunctional family the dysfunctional family drama or if you're at sundance the dysfunctional family dramedy the quirky dysfunctional mm-hmm. family dramedy uh it, it's something that uh is rarely actually that dark you know adorable heroin addicted grandpa stuff like that uh, and what I love about the happiness of the Katakuris, which is now available for rent, is that it's it's about subject matter that is genuinely dark, which is that bodies keep piling up at this B&B that the Katakuri, Katakuri family would like to own uh, or, or would like to start and would like to have be a success. Um, this movie is a 2001 movie from Takashi Miike, the very prolific and very varied and very inconsistent Japanese uh, filmmaker. It's one of, I would say, his better movies. Uh, if you know, you love this movie. I do love this movie, but I would say uh, Takashi Miike almost, I feel like, at his best, makes cult movies, and this is definitely uh, like a like a cult movie, like instantly. I think in the make, it, it, it's a remake of a Korean film called The Quiet Family, which is also a horror comedy, but nowhere near as weird as Mickey's version, which is free-ranging and bonkers at times. It includes the occasional song and dance numbers of all different styles. 
It includes a karaoke sing-along, including credits, which is like my favorite scene. It includes some animated interludes. It's about, so it's about this family of the Katakuris who have bought a big house on a former garbage dump that they've been promised uh, will soon be on this the path of this road, which will go through the area, uh, which will make it a great placement to to have this bed and breakfast slash inn. Um, but the road has not been built yet because the Katakuris never have good luck. They're all failures of various sorts at either their careers or their romantic relationships. Uh, when they finally do have a guest, a famous TV personality, that guest commits suicide. And the family decides that rather than have their nascent business be known as the site of this tragedy, they are going to bury the body and hide the body and pretend that nothing happened. Except, of course, the second guest who arrives also dies. And every guest subsequently who arrives dies. And they keep burying the bodies uh, and piling up. What I love about this movie is that I, I feel like it works as this parody of the family drama in which everyone learns to kind of like pull together and you know make it work uh that as a theme when a family when people are like burying bodies you're like you really shouldn't be cheering for them Mm. but but you are because of the weirdness of this and also because i think it takes place in this warped universe in which uh in one of the storylines the divorced uh adult daughter starts a romance with a man named richard who claims he is related to queen elizabeth and is in the u.s navy despite being clearly japanese uh, not speaking any English, really, um, and not seeming to actually have any job or military career, just a uniform. Um, but things like a storyline like that. There's a storyline like the karaoke sing-along. There are zombies at one point. Um, it is utterly unpredictable, but everyone plays it very straight, um, including like the ramp-up to this this kind of, yes, like, let's all pull it together. We can do this. So I think it works as, um, if you watch a lot of kind of Japanese television or movies, there's this kind of uh, the gambate spirit, right? They're like, we're going to go for it. We're going to try our hardest spirit. And I feel like the movie works as a parody of that moral very well. Um, but it, it's also, I, I think, a, like a very good uh, antidote to the the adorable dysfunctional family drama in that, everything is weird and wrong in this. Uh, it's like you had a normal dysfunctional family drama and it fell down the stairs and got broken and strange. And then everyone tried to pretend that, that, mm. that it was totally fine. Uh, so a really enjoyable movie about some very dark, dark things. That is The Happiness of the Katakuris, and it is now available for rent. All right, before we talk about a new release, one new release... Let's briefly uh, announce the winner of our little uh, contest we had. We had anyone who uh, gave us a iTunes review between our last recording and this recording was randomly entered in a drawing to win uh, A.L. Scott's book, Better Living Through Criticism. We got a bunch of new iTunes reviews. Thank you, everyone who uh, entered and left us reviews. Those are very useful and helpful. Um, The random winner was, Allison, would you like to announce the name? Okay. Our random winner is Scott Oscar. All right, so congratulations, Scott. Email us at svu at filmspottingsvu.com. We'll make sure you get your your prize. And we have a few other prizes to give out. We're going to skip this episode, but we will, we'll do this again soon. Maybe not the exact same way, but we have some fun stuff to give away on future episodes. So, And thanks again to everyone who entered. And now let's, let's talk about the only new movie that's out you know, either last week or coming out this week that we've both seen right now is a film entitled The Huntsman. I assume, it's about, I assume it's about John Huntsman. Is that right? 
I think it it's might be the origin man. story Hunts. of John Huntsman, the American politician. I I feel like that would maybe be a more coherent <laughs> tale, frankly, than Winter's War. So yeah, it's Huntsman, Winter's War, the prequel sl- and sequel. It's a prequel and a sequel, kind of a remake in some points because it sort of like rehashes the whole mirror mirror thing, right? And has a lot of like fantasy. But it's 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 a sequel. It's a prequel, almost a remake. And barely a movie. Yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah, <laughs> maybe is it a, is it a movie? I don't know. It's 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 funny to be like you have your first film, by no means like a new classic of cinema, right? But it is a gritty retelling of Snow White. What do you do in your sequel? You dump Snow White. Yeah, get rid you of. Follow her. the character who didn't have an, a first name right. in the first movie. You're like, let's just invent some nonsense backstory for him. Also, the kids liked Frozen a lot. Yeah. Let's have this be gritty Frozen. People people seem to like, it's a, well, it's also a mashup because it's like, let's take Frozen and let's put it into Game of Thrones. And some Lord of the Rings. And Lord of, the Rings. Lord of the Rings in there, actually. Yeah. And I mean, there's a little bit of Marvel. Plus, you've got the Hemsworth dude basically playing Thor. He has an axe instead of a hammer and he has a terrible Scottish accent instead of a passable English accent. It's... It is, it's amazing because they literally took a movie that, I mean, look, I'm sure there are people who thought the first movie was The first fine. movie made hundreds of millions of dollars also. Yeah, but it wasn't a, like, I'm a, not arguing for it's like, right. uh, but it like, was I mean, fine. this is not like a totally, as much as I think it's Nobody easy. was clamoring for well, more. It's, I, that's the thing. It's easy for us to look at this and be like, why would anyone make a sequel to this? But that first movie made, made a lot money. of money. So for but, a studio standard, they're like, it triggers an automatic right. sequel. But, but to make the movie, as you said, w- make a Snow White sequel without Snow White. It's like, well, nobody wants that. So what do they want? Well, let's just put in a lot of things that people do like. They like Frozen. They like Game of Thrones. They like these fantasy movies where with trolls and dwarves and goblins, and uh, and they like a lot of special effects. They like goblins that look like gorillas. What with, they apparently like, don't like horns. because they paid no attention to this is stories and interesting screenplays. Because this movie is, like I said, is barely a movie. It's like an, a vague origin story for a character from another movie. And then it jumps past the movie that exists and is like a just just it's like the most generic putting a group together to go on a quest to find a thing that doesn't matter MacGuffin. And then at the end of the movie, they bring back Charlize Theron, who's barely in the movie. But is by far the best part. She's so great. She's she's so so wonderful. (laughs) She is, I mean, almost literally eating the scenery at times. She has black goo that comes out of her mouth that like eats the scenery. She She, like like, literally eats the rest of the movie. She emerges like a T T one thousand except in gold. Gold. Which is so appropriate. It's like it's very her character. There's one part where she like throws her head back to cackle, and it is like the best part of the movie. And just like everything about her is the best part of the movie. The way she talks with this outrageously fake English accent. There's one part where she like catches like uh like the huntsman tries to kill her, and she like catches it and is like, "Hello, Eric," and it's so good. I killed your daughter. (laughs) Just she's wonderful, but she's in what. 10 minutes she's of the movie so little of the movie and emily blunt who is an actress i like a lot she's wonderful really, but she plays freya as like catatonic most of the time right really well and also like the first part of the movie though most of the movie where that charlie's theron isn't in she's like evil 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 like just just 
one note evil and then at the end of the movie they try to make her sympathetic they try to make this whole thing out of it they try to make a, a you know this dynamic between the two sisters which they can't do for the rest of the movie because Charlize Theron isn't in the rest of the movie so she goes from being this just like what is her plan what does she want I don't know but then at the end of the movie she kind of changes her mind anyway yeah anyway uh, and then uh, we should mention Jessica Chastain is in this the great she Jessica looks like Chastain. she's having a lot of fun she I will is. give it to her she that just, she I mean she unfortunately has a character who like makes so little sense right like a lot of the drama in her character seems like it could have re- resolved with like like a 30 a conversation. second conversation yeah like it's an idiot plot it's a classic idiot yeah. plot but I, I I got the sense that she doesn't get offered a lot of roles where she gets to kick butt and this was she's one a fun action heroine. Yeah, this. she's and she's credible. She's good. Like you get the feeling like in a better action movie, she would be great to watch. And you hope you hope she gets that movie someday. But yeah, this is definitely not that movie at all. So I, I, I have nothing other than I mean, this is a movie to watch on cable for the last 10 minutes just for Charlize Theron's performance. That's the only thing I would say is worth yeah, watching. Like she is in the very beginning and she's in the very end. Right. But the very beginning, she doesn't get to do that much. Yeah. The, the good stuff is at the end. The good stuff is at the end. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get to Behind the Eight Ball where we round up the show. We round up some recommendations, some movies, new movies on streaming. Uh, movies recommended by listeners. You guys have emailed us to svu at filmswriting.svu.com. And one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. Who's going first this time, well, why Allison? Why don't you go first? Okay. All right. Well, give me three new releases then. All right. First on Amazon Prime is Pawn Sacrifice, starring Tobey Maguire as Bobby Fischer, the famously eccentric and mentally troubled chess master. It tells his life story leading up to his famous world championship match with Boris Spatsky in 1972. Not an unconventional biopic, not an excellent biopic, but I thought it was interesting enough to recommend on streaming. I like Tobey Maguire in the movie as Bobby Fischer. So that's Pawn Sacrifice, available now on Amazon Prime. Next up on Netflix is Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine, Alex Gibney's documentary about the man who turned Apple computers into the biggest company in the universe. The film has none of the ease and sleekness of an Apple product, but... Uh, I, I like the movie better than uh, Steve Jobs, the Danny Boyle movie, I have to say. And ideally, I think it would make a good double feature with uh, Danny Boyle's uh, biopic. I feel like one kind of would inform the other in some interesting ways. So that's Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine, available on Netflix. And finally, a movie I haven't seen but very much looking forward to watching, possibly while very intoxicated. It is The Transporter Refueled, the reboot of The Transporter franchise. With Ed Scrain, I guess now you would say for Ed Scrain from Deadpool, because he was the bad guy right, in Deadpool, right. replacing Jason Statham, because nobody watched the Transporter movies for Jason Statham. Just get rid of him. It's kind of it like all about the depth of character. The right. character, the was character so, was the important so part. So amazingly, right? Written. Much like making a Snow White movie without Snow White, what you want to do is make a Transporter movie without Jason Statham. Um, I'm sure it's going to be great, but I'm not going to lie. I'm totally going to watch this movie while drunk on Amazon Prime. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. Our first comes from Dion, who writes, Hello, Allison and Matt. Uh, my recommendation is Kilo 2 Bravo, streaming on Netflix. This is a British movie from 2004, set in Afghanistan and based on a true story. A three-man patrol sets out to disable a Taliban roadblock, and as they are walking into a dry riverbed, one of them detonates a bomb. Several of their fellow soldiers rush to his aid, only to realize they are in a landmine field left over from 1980s Russian troops. This is one of the most nerve-wracking movies I have ever seen. I was on the edge of my seat and almost had a stomach ache from the anxiety it induced. I actually had to watch it over the course of three nights because I could not stand the tension for more than a half hour at a time. 
So the film is Kilo 2 Bravo, streaming on Netflix. Thank you, Dion, for that recommendation. And I guess the recommendation is if you want a movie so nerve-wracking you can't actually watch it, that would be the one to watch. And we've also got a recommendation here from Martin R. Martin R. Martin writes, Hey, podcast makers, let me weigh in with my humble recommendations for this week's episode. I just watched Enemy from director Denis Villeneuve of Polytechnique and Sicario fame which was really fascinating and challenging at the same time. As a bonus, I looked at the reviews on iTunes Germany, which were equally funny and disturbing. But the major part of the disappointment of all those reviewers is that they seem to be unwilling to accept or even consider anything which just slightly diverts or subverts their expectations. And Martin writes, all the best from Martin. And, and it's true. Enemy, I thought, was a good movie. And it is, it is one that will subvert your expectations. It, goes places you do not expect i thought in pleasant ways but if you don't if you don't buy in yeah if you're not if you don't like get on its wavelength you're gonna lose you certainly certainly but if you're a denny villeneuve fan which i am that that is definitely one of my favorites of his movies so thank you martin for that recommendation of enemy which is available right now on amazon prime all right, and one from your my list. You gave me number five, and right now number five on my my list is Close Range. There's the plot description. They took something that didn't belong to them. He took it back. That may have been a fatal mistake. This is the new Scott Adkins movie with uh, director Isaac uh, Florentine. I'm a big fan of their movie Ninja 2. Allison, have you seen Ninja 2? I have not. What? Is it better than Ninja 1? It is vastly superior to Ninja 1. No, Ninja 1, you can you don't have to waste your time with. Ninja 2, a.k.a. Ninja Shadow of a Tear, is a masterpiece. It is a direct-to-video action masterpiece. It doesn't have Mike Tyson, but other than that, I can't think of a way... That scene is so good. I can't think of a way Ninja 2 could possibly be improved. It's fantastic. And Close Range is another movie by the same with the same star, Scott Atkins, and the same director, Isaac Florentine. It's, uh, it's not as good as Ninja 2, but it is very serviceable. It gets the job done. So that I just watched it. I have to take it off my mind list because I already watched it, but I hadn't removed it yet because I've been distracted and busy. But Close Range, if you like Scott Atkins, if you like Isaac Florentine, if you like Ninja, Shadow of a Tear... Definitely watch that one. Allison. Yes. I think you should have to go watch Ninja Shadow of a Tear right now, but I'll let you at least finish the podcast first. That's so generous of you. Yes, thank you. I'm a, I'm a benevolent person. So why don't you start and give me three new titles? Okay. First up, new on uh, Warner Archive Instant. It's a streaming service. We don't talk about that often. Is Freebie and the Bean, one of my favorites. This is the 1974 kind of early buddy cop comedy, maybe even a buddy cop comedy before the genre existed and really came into its own. Starring James Caan and Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin as a terribly unconvincing Latino. Um, uh, as two cops, two police detectives in San Francisco who are trying to take down uh, a mob boss and also wreak all kinds of havoc in the process and it is they bicker wonderfully they drive a car off an overpass in san francisco that no longer exists and into someone's apartment they have fights they murder someone at one point which is a surprisingly dark thing for a buddy cop comedy uh it is all around fantastic it's such a pleasure um and this is a movie that I think Warner Archive are like the only ones who put out. I definitely, when I got it on DVD, got it through their kind of like uh, Warner Archive instant service. And so I was happy to see them add it to their streaming service. 
it is definitely worth a look. It is it is very enjoyable. Let us freebie in the bean. Uh, new to Netflix is Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt season two, uh, the the second season of the Tina Fey and Robert Car- Robert Carlock sitcom uh, that they originally tried to have on I think NBC and then mm. Netflix ended up picking it up. I will say I think the second season showcases more of the things that the the series does really well and more of the things it does not well. Mm. Uh, in the first half of the season, especially, just leans even harder into the kind of comedy about race, which has never been Tina Fey's strong point, and I think not the show's strong point either. Uh, the second half of the, the season, though, goes into details about like the trauma that the main character is basically ferociously repressing with this totally sunny attitude. Uh, and it does, I think, some really great things. Um, so uh, for that, certainly, I would say it is worth a look. Unbreakable Commissioner Season 2. And finally, new to Hulu with the Showtime add-on, unfortunately, not just regular Hulu, is It Follows, one of my favorite horror films of the last few years, a horror film that scared me silly and that introduced the world to the idea of a sexually transmitted ghost. Um, it is fantastic. I am assuming you've already seen it, but if you have not, uh, you can check it out on Hulu with Showtime. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? Okay, first up, we have one from Jill, who writes, I recommend The Hunting Ground, a 2015 doc about campus sexual assault made by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. It takes a good hard look at the nationwide epidemic of campus rape, the assholes who commit these crimes, and the schools that turn blind eyes. It is streaming on Netflix. Thank you for that recommendation, Jill. And then we got a tweet storm recommendation from Owen uh, on Twitter. That is Admiral Owen at Admiral Owen. Uh, Owen writes, hey, film spotting SVU. Uh, listener recommendation is on our UK Netflix site here. And I will add in the US, this is on Tubi TV. You can find it there for free. The 1996 comic book movie, The Phantom. The Phantom sits in an odd spot in comic movie history during the downward spiral of the Batman franchise before the more serious X-Men. It is one of those comic book movies that uh, never hit escape velocity to franchise out and thus is kind of lost. But though a bit dodgily weird and obviously retro, The Phantom is ridiculously good fun, self-aware and cheesy. The Phantom has a spring in its step and a wink in its eye, largely via Billy Zane's performance, which gives it a charm. Even if there are some weird aspects to it, including the fact that The Phantom is aided by a mountain wolf named Devil and a horse named Hero as you will. Uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones gives an insanely flirty performance as the villainess, whilst Treat Williams uh, offs enemies with razor blades. Um, oh, and though it is an obvious point, Phantom is a great anecdote to the lumberingly serious Batman versus Superman. Um, and yes, we all need anecdotes for the overly serious movie, whether it's Super, something like Super that really calls it, bites into it, or yeah. something like The Phantom. So thank you for that recommendation, Owen. Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number from your my list. Um, you gave me number three, which is a movie, and I apologize ahead of time for this title. It's a movie called Hashtag Horror. <laughs> and it is a hashtag right. and then horror. Yes. This is the directorial debut of Tara Subkoff, who was an actress, a fashion designer. She had a... a line called Imitation of Christ, which was kind of an all-around it girl, I think in the 90s, dated Wes Anderson for quite a while. Uh, and then she decided to make this movie, which is a horror film about cyberbullying. You mean a hashtag horror film? A hashtag horror film about cyberbullying. Right. Uh, it has an interesting cast. It stars Chloe Sevigny, Timothy Hutton, Natasha Lyonne, Taryn mm. Manning, and Balthazar Getty. It is kind of like, it's like the 90s hip- hipsters like came together to make a, a movie about... Yeah. Uh, 
young women and uh, some kind of social network and bullying. So, uh, you know, I don't think it got the greatest of reviews, but it's it's uh, an idea I'm willing to, to give a try to. Hashtag horror. That is obviously on Netflix. All right. Now, listeners' choice options for our next episode. Basically, what we did here is we've got a, a little bit of a theme. We noticed that uh, we had a couple of recent films that kind of could make an interesting uh, two some, and then we just added a third film that fit with that theme, and that theme would be sort of female-centric westerns, which is it's, it's a relatively rare to see in the world of westerns. Um, and there's a couple of recent ones. And there's one real classic movie that uh, fits that category. So we thought, let's uh, let no matter what you pick next time, that's what we're going to be talking about. So, Allison, you have the first option. What is it? It is The Keeping Room, which is going to be streaming on Netflix as of May 4th. And uh, this is a, a kind of female-centric Western that was, I think it, it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival and then played at a few others. And I, it, got, I think it was fairly well-received, but it was one that I never got a chance to check out while it was at the, on the festival circuit or in theaters. So I'd be very interested in giving it a look now. It Here's the plot description. Left without men in the dying days of the American Civil War, three Southern women two sisters and one African-American slave must fight to defend their home and themselves from two rogue soldiers who have broken off from the fast approaching union army. And the stars are Britt Marling, Haley Steinfeld and Muna Otaru uh, directed by Daniel Barber. And I think it's just mostly like a defending kind of like defending your property, def- holding down the fort kind of movie. Uh, but that's a good cast. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in the premise. So that is The Keeping Room, and that will be streaming on Netflix on May 4th. Okay, our second option is available right now for Rent. This is the classic title uh, of this category, and that is Johnny Guitar, directed by Nicholas Ray and starring Joan Crawford, Sterling Hayden, and Mercedes McCambridge. I will read you the plot description. A strong-willed female saloon owner is wrongly suspected of murder and bank robbery by a lynch mob when she helps a wounded gang member and it's funny because it's it's called Johnny Guitar like it has a masculine title but it is uh, it's less about him as it is the Joan Crawford character and a a it's a really classic film you haven't seen this one right I Allison? haven't it's one that I've always wanted to to finally catch up it's with been, it's been a long time since I saw it I I saw it I think a couple of times uh, in college and then again in, in grad school, but it's been a long time since, I've, time since I've seen it. And it is a fascinating movie. There's a lot of stuff going on here. It's, I feel like this is one of those movies that's written, uh, that was like made almost for people to write papers about it. Pretty much. School. I mean, exactly. And that's why I, that's where I saw it. Uh, we already mentioned Ebert once on this podcast, but he also has a great movies essay about Johnny Guitar. So if people haven't heard of it, you can read a little more about it there. I did like his description of it here. Surely one of the most blatant psychosexual melodramas ever to disguise itself in that most commodious of genres, the Western. It is a cheap Western from Republic Pictures, yes, and also one of the boldest and most stylized films of its time quirky political and twisted so and and that is all accurate there is a there's there'd be plenty to discuss in johnny guitar so that is option two johnny guitar available for rent all right and our third option which is also available for rent is jane got a gun which is an another western of course uh this one centered on a character played by natalie portman who is a woman 
defending her home and trying to save her outlaw husband, uh, who is played by Noah Emmerich, with the help of her ex, because why not also bring an awkward uh, social element into your defending of your your marriage? Uh, So her ex-lover is played by Joel Edgerton, who has been everywhere lately. This movie... uh, was more has become more famous for all of its behind the scenes troubles than yeah. you know than its actual release. It barely got an actual release. I don't think they even screened it for press in New York. They kind of dumped it right so. into theaters. Yeah. Um but you know Lynn Ramsey was a great uh director was originally attached to to direct it and then she ended up like walking off. I think like even after production it started or wasn't close I to think it. either they had were about to start or it was like the second first or second day. It was yeah. like literally was, yeah. cameras were about to roll and she she was just out. She, she was quit. It, yeah. And then Gavin O'Connor who's the director who ended up during it uh stepped in as a replacement um by that time uh, Jude Law, who had been one of the parts, also left. So lots of drama. Darius Kanji, there was even more coming the cinematographer and going. left. Oh, yeah, boy. there was a lot of like. So um, that said, I know some people who like this movie. Uh, I think the cast is amazing. Natalie and Portman, Joel fantastic. Edgerton, Noah Emmerich, Ewan McGregor, Rodrigo Santoro, uh, Boyd Holbrook, uh, and Gavin O'Connor uh, directed Warrior, which is a movie I love. Another and good movie. Never directed anything since then until this. I know. And Warrior was one of those movies that you think should have been a bigger hit, and then I think and, it, it never and it was. should have been a calling card. Yeah. So uh, I don't know what happened there, but I am still, you know, flawed as it may be. There's clearly some idea here that made people want to go through with finishing this movie and i would be interested in taking a look so that is jane got a gun and that is our third choice it is available for rent all right which movie should we review on the next episode of film spotting streaming video unit send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com your vote must be received by monday may 2nd at noon after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be on or around Tuesday, May 10th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, uh, as well as a list of direct links to all of the titles we discuss on the episode. So if there's something there you want to check out, that's where you'll find it. Uh, the Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the movie review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always follow us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore and Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Film Spotting SVU. Give us a like there. We can always use a like. Um, but Twitter and just because the the contest is over doesn't mean you don't you can you can't give us a review on iTunes. <laughs> that is true. Get, you know, always happy to have a new review. Um, but Twitter and Facebook are where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore and I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>